The following audio is from City Rev Church. For more information about City Rev Church, visit us online at cityrev.org. The greatest con man in history, at least by some standards, is a guy by the name of Victor Lustig. Some say he was born in, uh, in the Czech Republic. Some say he was born in Hungary. But, you know, we're just going on what he said, and he's a con man, so who really knows? But he was um, one of the, the greatest con men. And you say, well, there's been a lot of serious uh, con artists out there. Like, what did he do that kind of gives him that, that designation as one of the greatest in history? Well, for one, and this is what he, one of the things he's most famous for, he uh, effectively and successfully sold the Eiffel Tower for scrap metal twice. There was a newspaper article in Paris. He was in Paris at the time, and there's a newspaper article. Uh, this is in the, about 100 years ago. It was 1925, and there's a newspaper article where the French government reported to saying, hey, the, the metal, the iron is deteriorating. It's going to be very expensive to fix. There's a chance we might have to tear down the Eiffel Tower. It might not be, uh, we might not be able to preserve it. And they're just reporting that news. And uh, Victor uh, Lustig, if that is his real name, he uh, thought to himself, ah, here's an opportunity. So he forged some uh, official letterhead from the Parisian government, and he sent it out to the five leading scrap metal dealers in Paris. And he invited them to a meeting in the fanciest hotel in Paris, and he said, look, first of all, everything we say here has to remain very hush-hush, because it's very sensitive, the idea of tearing down the Eiffel Tower. But we're going to tear it down, and whoever gives the highest bid, we will give all of the scrap metal to you at the highest bid. And so then he, he wined and dined them. He took them on a tour of the Eiffel Tower. And by the end, they were all eager to give a bid for the Eiffel Tower for the scrap metal. And the one, he had picked one in particular he thought would be the easiest mark. And when the guy came back with his bid, he said, well, I mean, of course, you, you, you have the best bid. He says, but the, the challenge is, while uh, the government can uh, enable me to wine and dine you, I make but a meager salary as a civil servant. Hint, hint. Wink, wink. And the man knew exactly what he was saying. He wanted to be bribed in order to get his, in order to get his bib. And so the man gave him a significant bribe. I mean, exorbitant amount of money as a bribe. And once he got the bribe, that's all he needed. And he skipped down to Austria. And he combed the newspapers, uh, the, the Parisian newspapers, to see if any word of his scam came up. But his hunch was the guy would be so humiliated and embarrassed that he fell for such a scam that he would never even report it. And he was exactly right. No one ever reported it. So he came back to Paris and did it again. Five new metal dealers, five new bids. He picked his mark, scammed him out of a huge bribe, and fled, except this time he was uh, turned in. And so he fled to America, and he successfully pulled off one of the greatest cons of all times, selling the Eiffel Tower for scrap metal. But one of the things that makes him so interesting is he didn't just con like the average unsuspecting person. He conned con men. 
In fact, one of his cons would he, is he would uh, bring these shady characters together, and he had a machine that he said printed counterfeit money perfectly. And he would, uh, without them noticing, put $100 bills in the machine and put in uh, regular paper, and it would print out $100 bills, and he would make them all bid against themselves to get this counterfeit machine, but they didn't realize it was a counterfeit counterfeit machine. Maybe the, the greatest con of all was when he was in America, he conned Al Capone. He went to meet Al Capone. And by the way, Al Capone never knew it. He went to meet with Al Capone. He says, I've got this great deal for you. It's going to be amazing. You just got to trust me. I need $50,000 of your money. Al Capone lent him the, gave him the 50000 of the money, expecting a huge return. And you know that if you don't bring that return back to Al Capone, bad things happen. He shows up, he just sits on it. He does nothing for a few months. He comes back to Al Capone and says, um, hey, listen, the deal didn't go through. Al Capone is probably reaching for his Tommy gun at that point. And he said, but because I'm an honest man, here's all $50,000 back to you. Al Capone put his Tommy gun down. He'd never seen such a thing. He's like, the character of this man, here's a $1,000 reward to which he took and left. That was the whole reason he did it. He figured Al Capone would give him a reward. So get this. He conned Al Capone by making him think he was a man of integrity. Unbelievable. He ended up um, getting finally arrested, and he, and he died in Alcatraz um, a few years later in the late 40s. But he was one of the greatest uh, con, men, uh, con men of modern times. And one of the things that made it so difficult is he masqueraded, especially in the Al Capone story, he masqueraded as someone of integrity, but actually all along was a con artist. Those are the hardest cons to pick out. Unbelievable. It's interesting about counterfeits. Counterfeits, um, you've got to look very closely because from a distance they look exactly the same. You've got to look in the details. All the time we are warned by our banks to watch out for scams. We get scams over email. We get scams over text message. We get scam telephone calls. We have princes contacting us from other countries asking us to send them money so they can be freed. We have all kinds of scams coming at us and we're warned. But you know, we're also warned in the Bible about counterfeits. A lot of the New Testament tells us to watch carefully for false teaching and false doctrine and false gospels that sneak their way into the church. And if they were easy to spot, it wouldn't require so much discussion in the New Testament. And I want to show you one of these passages that talks about a counterfeit that we have to watch out for. Because if we don't, the consequences could be absolutely devastating. I want you to open with me to the book of Galatians. Galatians chapter 1. We're going to start right in the beginning of this uh, book. It's uh, really, in its original context, was a letter by the Apostle Paul, the famous, sometimes called Saint Paul. He wrote the book of Galatians, and I want you to look right at the beginning at what he says. <laughs> It says this, Galatians 1, verse 1. Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead, and all the brothers who are with me to the churches of Galatia. 
Now, this beginning part is a, a part of the pattern of ancient letter writing. So, for example, we, uh, when, when you send an email, when we send emails, without even realizing it, I mean, there's kind of a set cultural pattern. At the very top, you type in the email address of the person that you're sending it to. They will see when they receive it, first and foremost, your email address. They will first know who it's coming from. Then after you put in the, the email address of where you're sending it, there's a subject line and you type in the subject line. And then when you get into the body of it, you then readdress it to them. They know it's who it's, that is to them, but you that's just part of our pattern. You readdress their name, comma, space. Then you put the body of your email and at the end you write your name. And then after that, you have probably an email signature. So it's kind of a formality. It's just kind of something culturally that we do. We do it without thinking about it. It's the same if you're a handwritten letter or a business letter. There's kind of a, a, a formula to it. And in the same way, in the ancient letters, there was an ancient formula. And we can see this playing, it out, playing out in Paul's books and in Paul's letters. Um, it starts with the person introducing who's writing. So whereas we put our signatures typically at the ends of letters, it would go at the very, very beginning of the letter. He says, Paul, an apostle. And there's a very predictable pattern that goes through it. But there's some unique ways that Paul opens the letter of Galatians that is different from all of the other letters that he wrote. And it's actually significant. We've got to take note of it. He opens up like with signing his name, Paul. And then he says, Paul, an apostle. Now, some letters he just says, Paul and Timothy writing to, to whoever. Or he says, Paul, an apostle by the will of God. But he kind of lands on this moment a little stronger, and there's good reason for that. He kind of flashes his badge to make sure they see it. He says, Paul, an apostle. That's sent one. I'm sent from God. And he's very clear. Not by the hands of men. No one else appointed me to be an apostle. He says, but by Jesus himself. He's calling back his own story where Jesus himself appeared to Paul and commissioned him to be an apostle. I mean, Paul is really showing his credentials here. And he doesn't always do this. And it's not just because he's, he's being prideful or vain. There's good reason for it. He says, Paul, an apostle, not by the hands of men, but by God. And then he says to the church in Galatia. Now, um, this is also something that's different. Paul wrote many letters. Sometimes he wrote to individuals. So he wrote two letters to, to Timothy. He wrote a letter to Titus. Those are pastors that he was mentoring. He wrote to a friend by the name of Philemon. He wrote to churches in a lot of cities. He wrote to the church in Rome. He wrote two letters to the church, the church in Corinth. He wrote two letters to the church in Thessalonica. He wrote the Ephesian church, the Philippian church, the church in Colossae. This is the only letter he is writing to an entire region. Galatia is not a city. It's a region of cities. And several of the cities um, you would recognize if you read through the book, in, uh, the book of Acts. Paul stopped down on several of these cities. And he's writing a letter back. This would probably be read to them. And the expectation is it's circling to several cities in that region. It's something else that's unique about, about the book of Galatians. He's writing to a whole region. But there's a, a few other things that are important to notice about this. Let's keep going. I want you to see what he says in verse 3. Galatians 1. He says, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins 
to deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of God and Father to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Most of his letters, he says, Paul, uh, Paul an apostle or, or Paul and Timothy or whoever. And then he says, who's writing it? He kind of signs his name first. Then he says, uh, to whom he's writing. And then he says, grace and peace to you. Sometimes that's all he says, grace and peace to you. Sometimes it's a little bit more. In this case, he shares the whole gospel with him. Did you notice that? By the way, these uh, first five verses that we've read, most literal, like really, really woodenly literal uh, English translations, this is all one sentence. He's getting all this out in one long, robust opening sentence. He's sharing the gospel. He says, Jesus by the grace of Jesus, who's delivered you out of this dark and evil age. We're tempted to think as moderns, like we're the first ones to deal with a dark and evil age. He says, who's delivered you from a dark and evil age. He says more specifically, who gave himself up to deliver us from a dark and evil age. He's highlighting, gives the gospel, highlighting the, the sacrifice of Christ what it took to deliver us. It cost Jesus. So here's the formula. Paul, here's who I am. Here's who I'm writing to. Grace and peace on you. Now the next section, the formula in ancient, in ancient um, letters would be, you would say, hey, I, it would be an encouragement. You'd say something positive. I thank, I'm so thankful for you for this, this, and this. That was the common formula. That's something that we don't necessarily do in all of our letters. Certainly not all our emails, but they would, they would do this in their letters. I thank God for you. In some of Paul's longer letters, like Romans, 1st and 2nd Corinthians, Paul would start with a blessing. Man, blessing on you because of God. All blessings because of the gospel. And then he would say, I thank my God for you. Sometimes he just, in his shorter letters that are more like the length of Galatians, like Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, he just jumps into, I thank my God every time I remember you in prayer. So he says, so it's me, Paul. It's then, it's, uh, this is who I am. To you, Galatians, grace and peace. I'm so thankful for you for this. It's real flowery. It's real beautiful. It's real encouraging. Now, why am I telling you all this like detail about letter writing and the formula and the order? Because I want you to see that at this point, Paul makes a pretty serious departure from the letter order. Right when we're expecting, and the Galatians would be expecting, this beautiful, encouraging, thankful encouragement to them, this is what he says next. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Wow. That's a, it's like a slap in the face. I mean, it is like a bucket of cold water. This is not what they would have expected. I mean, I want you to imagine, like, this is, um, this is read publicly. I want you to imagine, they're like, Uh, The messenger comes up and says, hey, church, uh, this morning, we have a letter from Apostle Paul. You remember Apostle Paul? Who hasn't heard of Apostle Paul? He has a letter to us as a church. Open the scroll, and they read it, and they're expecting some encouragement. And what they get is, I can't believe you've already deserted the gospel. I mean, there's probably gasps. Like, there's probably, like, murmuring happening through the church. Like, there's probably, like, people looking at each other like they can't believe it. He's like, I'm at a loss for words. 
And then we'll find out he's not at a loss for words. He's got a lot of words. What is his, what is his accusation of them? He says, I cannot believe it. You have turned to a different gospel. You've already lost the gospel. Let's just define our terms for a second. We use the gospel in a, in a, a lot of ways. I mean, it's a genre of music. You know, it's, it's, uh, we kind of just sometimes throw it on to mean kind of biblical thing. What do we mean? Let's define the gospel. The word gospel in the original Greek is euangelion. It means, uh, there's two things put together. The prefix uh, eu means good. So it's like euphoria would be the same prefix that we would, that would uh, make it into English. It means good. Angelion is where we get the English word angel. The word angelion means messenger. So that's, again, where we get the word angel. So it's good message. So when we say it's good news, we, sometimes we translate the word gospel as meaning good news. Let's put it kind of more directly in its context. It's not like, hey, good news, you got into the college you wanted to get into. It's not like, hey, good news, you got the promotion. It's not, hey, good news, I found the TV remote. It was under the couch cushion this whole time. It's not just like everyday good news. It is the type of good news that required a messenger. So like the most precise context for good news would be a messenger bringing news of victory in battle. So a city is waiting to find out, like, is the army coming? We sent out our whole army. You know, it's just those that have left behind that can't fight. We sent out our whole army and we're just waiting because if the army doesn't win, we're finished. So we sent them out, our loved ones. Did they survive? Are they okay? Uh, did, did, did that help that we were looking for, that other army come in and help us and save the day? Like, did we win the, the battle? Did we have victory? And all of a sudden, a herald would come into the city. Someone would come running down into the city with a message of good news. Something good that required a messenger. We have victory. Our enemies are defeated. We have been spared unimaginable atrocities, unimaginable difficulties, unimaginable enslavement. Like our future is open. We're not just facing death and enslavement and, and, and difficulty. We, we're not facing captors. Good news, there was a victory that set us free, saved the day. Our future stretches before us. There's a deliverer who won the day for us. This is the background. This is the, the power. This is the sense. This is the texture of the word gospel. It's not just like, well, that's good news. It's not just like the lighter side of the news. It's like a victory has been won that changes everything. You can see why this is the, this is the word harnessed for the message of what the Messiah, the Deliverer, Jesus Christ did to fight the battle and save the day so, there, there is, so that no longer are we in the clutches of the greatest enemy of death and sin. The chains have been broken. We've been set free. Our future is not doom and hell. Our future stretches into eternity, into, into heaven because of the work of our Deliverer. That's the term used, a battle was fought and we have gotten the victory. That's the gospel. You believe that church? That's the gospel. 
He says, I can't believe that you've deserted the gospel. Whoa, what's happening? Well, let's look again. Let's pick it up at 6 again. Well, what's, what's going on in Galatia? I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? For were, um, if I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. He says, listen, I, trust me. Paul says, trust me when I say, and most of these cities saw Paul like face physical persecution when he delivered the gospel. He says, trust me when I tell you, I'm standing for the gospel. I'm, I'm not trying to please man. The moment I try to please humans, then I'm no longer a servant of Christ. I'm exclusively a servant of Jesus Christ. I'm not trying to please anyone else. He says in any, did you notice the wording he used? Any distortion of the gospel, he says, is a desertion of Jesus. Any tweak Anything that's, that's changed a little bit about the good news of Jesus and the victory Jesus won, anything that's tweaked in the gospel is effectively deserting Jesus. Notice, like, you see his passion. Okay, what's going on here? Like, what's happening in Galatia that, that, they're, that they've got this, this issue? Like, have they turned to, like, back to paganism? Like, is it like, you know, in, in Ephesus, they have a temple to Artemis. In, in Philippi, they have a temple to uh, Apollos. To, um, in some of these other cities, like Corinth and, and others, they have other temples to Aphrodite. Like, have they stopped serving God, the gospel? Are they no longer serving Jesus? Have they gone back into paganism? Like, are they no longer going to church? Like, is he talking to lost people that are lost in the world? No, this is to the churches of Galatia, they're still coming to church. They're still sitting there in the gathering week after week, every Sunday. The first day of the week, they come together, they worship. He's speaking to people that are probably leading. They're probably welcoming people into their houses and like small group settings, and they're maybe leading small groups or they're deacons in their church and they're the lead servants or maybe they're, they're leaders. Maybe they're some of their ministers and elders and pastors. I mean, he's speaking to the church. It's people just like you and me. And he says, it's not that they've gone off and they're back at the, temp the temple of Apollo. They're right there in, in the pew, so to speak, in the seat. They're right there in the gathering. But something has snuck into the church and it's turned the dial on the gospel just a little bit that they haven't noticed. But that little turn of the dial is equivalent to Paul as deserting Christ. And remember, this is the word of God. 
it's not just Paul who's just like, he's just really like theologically minded and he cares about the details. This is the word of God. What is the, what is the desertion? What have they done? What is the tweak? Let me just flip a page over and I'll, he takes a while to build up to it, but I'll just get right where he gets to the point in Galatians 3. This is what he says. Oh, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? What's happened? He says, he he goes through this book. And he, and he calls out exactly what has happened. You know, when Paul would go to these cities, he'd start in the Jewish synagogue. Why? Because it's the fulfillment of the Jewish Messiah. Jesus was the fulfillment of the Jewish Messiah. But the new covenant is to Jews and Gentiles. It's all these, all people from all different tongues and languages are being blessed by the seed of Abraham, Jesus Christ. And so what's happened is he's going to these, he's showing them the freedom that they have that Jesus fully fulfilled all of the Old Testament law. And he's fully justified them. Their their hope is in Jesus Christ. That Jesus died once and for all. Jesus did all the work to be saved. All of their righteousness is in Christ. All their justification is in Christ. All their hope is in Christ. Their life is Christ. It's all by Christ. They are set free. Now to work that out in godliness. And as he went on to a city, there were people that would come in behind them. And they would see the, as they're trying to raise up leaders anchored to the gospel, they'd see this power vacuum and they would come in and they'd say, well, but you still have to do these works of the law. I mean, there's, there's circumcision and then there's all these, all these festivals and feasts and there's all these works of the law and you got to do this, 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 and this because it's Jesus. And here's what they're essentially saying. It's Jesus and your good works. Yes, it begins in the spirit, but you finish it in the flesh. Yes, you're saved, but if you don't do all of these works of the law, also are, you're not really saved. And so they're bringing all these laws, all these rules, all these things that if you don't do these things, you're not really saved. And so, man, it's like this. It's like, if you ever, you ever seen them explain the difference between like a counterfeit bill and a real, real bill? You ever seen this before? And they'll say, take a real $100 bill in your hand. And, and they'll say, like, and, they may, and maybe they'll show you like the difference between a counterfeit and a real $100 bill. And when, when untrained eye, you look at it, I mean, it's not like it's a real $100 bill and Monopoly money, right? I mean, there's a reason that it fools bankers and and cashiers. I mean, it looks really close. And they'll show you, yeah, but you have to look, you see how this one's got like a particular color hologram and this one doesn't? I mean, you see how run your fingers, like close your eyes and run your fingers over this ink and run your fingers over this ink. You can see how this one's raised and this one's not. If I mean, feel the paper, you know, and, you, and then feel this paper. I mean, this, the subtleties, they're so small, the subtleties. But in those tiny subtleties, I mean, 99% of the bills are the same. But in the subtlety between the counterfeit and the real one is the difference between having something and having nothing. And what Paul says is, you can put your hope in nothing but Jesus. It's Jesus plus nothing. 
It's not, I work and I'm good enough. I, be, I do all the right things and I've earned salvation. So it's good works to earn salvation. No, Jesus did all the works. I'm saved by the work that Jesus did, and I live that out to honor him with my life. Out of the fact that he's already fully 100% saved me, I walk in perpetual forgiveness and grace. Out of that, per- that incredible work that he accomplished, I now submit my entire life to him walking by the Spirit. That subtle nuance is the difference between everything, and according to Paul, a desertion of Christ. The book of Galatians calls out uh, a false gospel. And what what he points out through this book is he says, there's other ways you're trying to justify yourself. Laws, rules, festivities, celebrations. There's other ways you're trying to say, well, because I do these things, I'm right before God. It's it's a self-righteousness. My righteousness is because I am right, I'm doing right, I'm thinking right, I'm acting right, so I am right before God. That is a righteousness based on myself. That's self-righteousness. You cannot be saved by self-righteousness. It is Jesus is my righteousness. He did everything right before God, and that gets applied to me. Jesus is my righteousness. I justify myself with nothing else. I hope in nothing else. I'm not saying, I hope I'm good enough. I hope I'm right. I hope I've done enough. No, my hope is in Jesus. And the problem is if I'm built on a self-righteousness or a self-justification or if my hope is in something other than Jesus, here's what ends up happening. And this was happening in in Galatia. Their churches were, he says, you are biting and devouring each other. There was deep disunity. And that's where he comes in. There's neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free. Listen, the dividing lines are not the nuances of how you justify yourself. The dividing line is Jesus says, all these are mine. And there's unity. Now, the message of, um, of Galatia, Galatians, it's been an important book throughout history. Because at various points, false gospels have snuck into the church. So in fact, the book of Galatians was a critical book at the time of the Reformation. One of the most significant books because the church had piled on all of these extra things that you had to do to be saved. And so then these people were opening up their Bible and they said, look what it says, it's Christ alone. And they would stand on that phrase. It became one of the rally cries. It's just Jesus. It's Christ alone. And that became a rally cry 500 years ago. We wouldn't be here today if it wasn't for those brave men and women who opened up the book of Galatians and other books and said, look, it says Christ alone, not Christ plus anything. It's just Jesus. And so we being faithful in our era, we say, okay, what then could the false gospel be that is trying to find its way into the, into the South Florida church, into the, 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 the church in our region, into the, the church of the West or the church of our country or the church of our state. What would be the false gospel that is, that is kind of sneaking its way in that, man, if you hold it back, it looks right. But if, you're really, if you look really closely, there are other things we justify ourselves by. There's other things we hope in. And then it creates dividing lines that make us bite in devour each other, what might there be in our generation that would cause that level of division among those that Christ has adopted together in one family? I don't know if you're aware, 
but this is an election year, just to make some of you aware. You might have missed that. I don't know if you, you, you saw that or not. Um, but it's an election year. And um, particularly every election year, there's some challenges facing the church. Because for starters, politics, politics, it's, the gravity is, is intense. There's, the stakes are real. The issues are important. Christians, we do not have the option of just stepping back and saying, I'm not going to do anything. You need to be informed. You need to be prayerful. You need to vote. It's part of engaging our city. It's part of being a witness. It's part of being salt and light. You, 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 um, we bring everything in our lives under the lordship of Jesus Christ. That includes how we vote. We do everything for Jesus. It's important. But politics also has a way of snaking its way in the church and becoming a false gospel. It becomes a way I justify myself. It can become a way I, what I put my hope in. And we see the fruit of that by causing sharp dividing lines among the people that were brought together by the blood of Jesus. This is kind of our, we've been talking about, we talk about this subject matter quite a bit in uh, recent years. We did a, a podcast back in, um, in the late summer um, about how to watch over your soul through a political season. And uh, this is kind of our midpoint check-in. Let me give you a few things of what it might look like when politics become a false gospel. And I just say, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. Because I'm sure there were a lot of Galatian leaders and Christians who were like, oh, I'm glad he's here saying this because I'm glad he's saying it to them. <laughs> I, want us to, I wanted to sit in the demeanor of Paul when it comes to a false gospel. He splashed them in the face with a bucket of cold water, shaking their shoulders. So let's each one of us say this passage is for me. That he has a word that he brought me here for. Here's a few things. I'm going to give you six. Politics is a false gospel when it is my primary hope. At the end of uh, this election cycle, um, if your party wins or your party loses, there will be the temptation to feel full of hope or hopeless. But your hope is not in a candidate or a party. I heard my daughter, uh, my, Rebecca and I were, were driving the kids were in the car, my youngest, my four-year-old, <laughs> this was not planned. Her name is Hope. I just now put that together. She was in the... It's kind of obvious, but oh well. Uh, this is when the Holy Spirit's like, that's why I preach these sermons, okay, not you. All right. Anyway, Hope was in the back, and she was just singing in the back. He's got the whole world in his hands. And she kept singing. It was verse after verse. Brother and sister, 
all the little babies, the kittens and the puppies. I'm like weeping behind the wheel, you know? (laughs) You realize, you know what the book of Daniel says? Kingdoms rise and fall in the hands of the Almighty. Politics are important. I'm not saying it's not important. You should definitely vote. But in the end, your hope is in Jesus. He's still the king. He's still on the throne. Our nation, our state, our city is in his hands. He's saying, I'm not worried. And we are not a people who have a spirit of fear. Our hope is just in Jesus. If you have a spirit of anxiety right now, of fear, as if everything comes down to who wins, it doesn't. It's always been in the hands of Almighty God. And he says, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and seek my face and pray, I will heal their land. Our land is always in his hands. Our hope is in him. In him alone. Second one, if I view politics as politics is a false gospel, when it is my primary battle, if I see the number one battle in the world or in my life or among my friends or on my social media or in this, our community or in our nation, if I see the primary battle lines as being political, it has become a false gospel. Because what we've been told is the battle is not against flesh and blood. The battle is against principalities of the air. There is, a, there is against demonic powers. There is a greater battle that's happening that comes down into all parts of this world. And we acknowledge, no, that is the greater battle. And that means that is my enemy. And my hero, it's not that the battle lines are not drawn on earth where these guys are my hero and these guys are my enemies. I love my enemies and I see all humans as made in the image of God. I do not have a spirit of hate. I have a spirit of love. And so I look at all human beings, whether they have the opposite political view or the same political view or whatever. I say, look, you're made in the image of God. And I understand that there is a a greater battle. The real bad guys are spiritual bad guys. And the real good guy, his name is Jesus. If my primary battle is a political one, it's a sign that I have let in a false gospel. If my prime, number three, politics is a false gospel when it is my primary message. If you've got one shot to convey a piece of good news to someone, if you could change their mind on one thing, what would it be? Please let it be for the sake of their soul for eternity. Please have the spirit of Paul where he said, I decided to know nothing among you. I decided to know nothing, he said to the church in Corinth, except Jesus and him crucified. So I brought to you what is of first importance, which is Jesus his death and resurrection. If you've got one message that you can get out there on social media, one decal you could put on the back of your car, one argument you could get in with your family, one argument you could get in at work, if you've got one one liner you could put in and seasoning your, your language with salt, please season your language with the saltiness of the gospel. Please, if you're going to put one stone of stumbling in your life, Don't make it a stone of stumbling of your politics. Make it the stone of stumbling of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Please make it your primary message. Politics is a false gospel when it is my primary tribe. If I can't have fellowship with someone 
who Almighty God saw as so precious that he expended the blood of Jesus for them. If I can't see that person as my brother or sister because they believe something different politically, I've drawn the lines in the wrong place. Because in the bride of Christ, there is neither Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free, male nor female. Among the 12 Jesus disciples, he had a zealot and a tax collector. You could not have more extreme political views. He does the miracle of bringing people that would never be in the same room together as one family. You have a higher allegiance. It's to the kingdom of God and where you have someone who acknowledges Jesus as their savior. If they disagree on 100% of everything else, you still have more in common with them because you have Jesus and you'll spend eternity together. If politics is your primary tribe, it's become a false gospel. If politics has become your primary nourishment, you found a false gospel. If I spend a, a few minutes a day drinking down the word of God and long stretches of every day being fed by political commentary and cable news, then my mind, I'm planted by streams of the world's politics. That is what is conforming my mind. Please invert it, please. Spend a few minutes staying up to speed and long stretches of your day planted by the streams of water. Then your leaf, your leaves and your, will be fruitful rather than withering on the vine. It, look at the fruit. Long stretches of political commentary and cable news in your life will leave you feeling anxious and hateful. Whereas the fruit of the Spirit is love and joy and peace. Here's the last one. Politics is a false gospel when it is my primary framework. If I look at my life and my views of society and what needs to happen in my nation, and if I just go down the line of my political party without questioning, and then back into Bible verses, I'm starting with a political framework and backing into a biblical framework. But here's what Jesus said. He said, here's what it would be like to follow me. Excuse me. He says, here's what it looks like to follow me. If anyone would follow me, they have to hate their mother and father and wife and children and sisters and brothers. You're like, wait, what? Is he saying hate? No, of course not. He's the same person that says, love your enemies. He's saying the differential between your allegiance to Jesus and any other allegiance is so vast that any other allegiance is minuscule. My allegiance to King Jesus and his kingdom is so profound that any other political allegiance is so minimal that I take everything Jesus says and I hold it over all parts of, the, of every political party and I say, well, I don't know. I'm going to check it with Jesus. I'm not going to start with a political framework and back into the Bible. I'm always going to start with a biblical framework and be discerning over all of my politics. 
church, have the level of urgency that Paul did, that Paul does about what's at stake. Here's what you can expect and continue to expect. This is the same message we have preached for years, every election cycle. This is the same message. Here's what you can expect from your church. It's this. I'll read it to you out of 2 Timothy. This is what your church is responsible to do. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearance in his kingdom, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching, for the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but will have itching ears. They will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions, and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. Church, this is what was going to happen. There will be people that says, you need to talk more about this, and you need to, to get everyone that's going towards this. You need to get everyone's going through this issue. Like, I know you can't say who you should vote for, but you need to hint that they should vote for this. And maybe you're not doing that because you're trying to protect your 501c3, or maybe you're afraid, or maybe you just want everyone to get along, and you're trying to be a peacemaker. Or maybe it's this, or maybe it's this. No, no. Hear the urgency of what's at stake. Anything that we preach that justifies you with the gospel is a distortion of a gospel and it's a desertion of our savior, Jesus Christ. And so even though there's ears itching to hear, when politics takes over everything and there are some that are surprised it's not taken over the church as well, we will say, listen, what faithfulness looks like is that the world is not dying for another place that is sounding off on politics. It is dying to hear a pure, clean gospel. That's what the world needs to hear. We will preach the gospel. We will work through it. Our church is a church that people from all different backgrounds, economically, politically, nationally, come from all different backgrounds and come here surrounding one line. It's the blood of Jesus. That's what brings us together. What, what do each of us need to do? Let he who has ears to hear, let them hear. Please. The gravity is the gospel. Fight to keep this from becoming a false gospel in your life. What does he say? What is he saying that needs to change in your life? Let's not be hearers of the word only, but doers as well. Now, can I share with you what the good news really is? It's that no matter what happens in this world, there's a happy ending. No matter what's happening in your life right now, it's going to work together for good. No matter what injustices you see in this, in this world right now, justice will one day be upheld. No matter what unrighteousness you see that you know hurts our Savior's heart, hurts the Holy God, one day righteousness will reign. How could that possibly happen? Because we have a God that is so good and so powerful and so loving that He came to earth Himself, the Son of God, and put on flesh, and He fought the entire battle against the true enemy, sin and death, and He took 
all of your guilt and all of your shame and all of your sin and all of my shame and guilt and sin. And he took it all on himself and he died brutally, tortured on a cross and went down into death. But he came up out of the grave with the keys of death and Hades saying, I own that place now too. And he reigns for all time at the right hand of the throne of God. And one day he will come consummating his reign. He will come out of the sky at any moment so that the spirit and the bride say, come Lord Jesus. It could be before the year's out. It could be before November. It could be before the day is out. But one day Jesus will come down on this earth and all of creation will be resurrected. It will all be redeemed. It will all be recreated. And we, because of the blood of Jesus, will reign with him for all time. That is good news that this world cannot touch, cannot rival. That is the news we're spending our lives heralding. That is the news that has such a bearing on our lives that it takes over every part of our lives and we live it out. It's Jesus alone and nothing else. Let's pray. There may be some of you here that are realizing you've put your faith in Jesus plus something else and need to return to the gospel. Repent and turn away. Turn back to just Jesus. There may be some that need to turn to Jesus for the first time. If that's you, let me lead you in this prayer just quietly there at your seat. Just receive salvation. Say, Jesus, silently, just say to him, he hears you, your king hears you. Say, Jesus, I make you my king. You saved me. I stand on the work you did. And I live that out with my life. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening. For more resources and to check out other teaching series, please visit our website at cityrev.org. If you would like to speak to somebody about beginning a relationship with Jesus or ask any questions you have about this teaching, you can email us at podcast at cityrev.org.